Good afternoon. I'm Alex Jones, director of the Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, and I welcome you to this special event with Secretary of the Treasury, Tim Geithner. It is special not only because we have the Secretary with us, but because it is also a memorial to Walter H. Shorenstein, Shorenstein Center's great friend and benefactor who died just short of a year ago. Walter Shorenstein was a man of many parts. He was best known as the founder of the Shorenstein Company, which is one of the nation's most successful commercial real estate companies, now run by his son, Doug, who is with us today. Walter Shorenstein endowed the Shorenstein Center as a memorial to his daughter, Joan, a superb journalist who died of cancer before her time. Walter wanted Joan's life to be honored by something as meaningful and dynamic as the life she had lived. And I'm proud to say that the Joan Shorenstein Center will celebrate its 25th anniversary this year. But Walter was also a great citizen in every sense of the word. He cared deeply about his country, and it was his lifelong custom to look over the horizon and seek solutions to the nation's serious problems. He was especially attuned to financial affairs and had strong views about how to safeguard the nation economically. Were he with us today, the nation's, indeed the world's economic crisis would have been at the top of his list of concerns. Doug Shorenstein, his sister Carol Shorenstein Hayes, and the Shorenstein family joined with us in inviting Secretary of the Treasury Geithner to address those concerns today. Please join me in recognizing Walter Shorenstein and the members of the Shorenstein family who are present for their enduring public spirit. And I would be remiss if I did not also publicly thank the staff of the Shorenstein Center and especially Edie Hallway for their superb work on putting this together on very short notice, if I may. For two years, three months, and 22 days, I won't count the hours and minutes, Tim Geithner has been at the center of a fiscal maelstrom. If he did not have a thick skin when he started, he no doubt feels that he resembles a crocodile by now. Before becoming Secretary of the Treasury, he was Chief Executive Officer of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. As a journalist who believes in correcting journalistic errors, I would like to stress that he has never worked at Wall Street and was not an employee of Goldman Sachs, ever. <laughs> He's a graduate of Dartmouth College and the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. He has studied Japanese and Chinese and lived both places, something that seems to grow ever more important in, the navi in navigating the world economy. So how has he done his job so far? Two years and five months ago, he was being lambasted by both the right and the left for his fiscal rescue plan. Yesterday, the headline for a Bloomberg News column by Al Hunt said, Geithner emerges as Obama's indispensable man, which is not to say that brickbacks, brickbacks are not still flying here and there. It is my pleasure and honor 
to welcome the Secretary of the United States Department of the Treasury, Tim Geithner. Thank you, Alex. That was gracious. Uh, nice to see you from the Shorency family. I admire so much um, what Walter did. Uh, my uncle, Jonathan Moore, played a small role in the history of the center. Uh, when he was the director of the Institute of Politics, I was uh, studying at Dartmouth, and I used to, my parents were still living overseas, and I used to go um, spend vacations with his family, and I remember sitting on the floor of his office for many hours, sometimes studying, waiting for him to give me a ride uh, home. And uh, what a great cause uh, you're engaged in, which is trying to improve the basic quality of public debate on the consequential policy questions of our time. I want to talk today about the question of how we deal with our fiscal challenges to explain why this is so important, what should be done, the politics and the economics of a credible solution, and the perils and the promise of the negotiations now underway in Washington. I choose this subject because, not because it is the only challenge we face in economics, in economic policy, with unemployment still around 9%, millions of Americans still uncertain about their economic future, we face as a country very formidable economic challenges. But our ability to deal with those challenges will be determined by our ability to restore long-run fiscal sustainability. Now, we spent the last decade piling on debt to pay for expensive tax cuts, a large prescription drug benefit, and two wars. On top of that legacy of choices, we had to clean up the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. And we face unsustainable future fiscal deficits caused in large part by the dramatic rise in the number of Americans that will turn 65 in the next decade, combined with the fact, of course, that we now live longer and the cost of medical treatments is so much more expensive. Today, we have to find a way to return to living within our means. Our fiscal problems are so pressing that they threaten to undermine the foundations of our future economic strength, our ability to protect our national security interests, and our capacity to sustain the commitments made by 13 presidents over 75 years to provide economic security to the poor and to the elderly. We now borrow 40 cents for every dollar we spend. And under current policies, our total federal debt burden will be almost as large as the entire output of the American economy within the next decade. We do not have the option of leaving this problem to another day, another Congress, or another president. Now, it's true that we are able today to fund these deficits at very low interest rates, less than 3.5% now for a 10-year Treasury bond. But these rates are a reflection of confidence that we will act, not a justification for inaction. And they are unusually today, unusually low today, also because of the relative lack of other investment alternatives in a world still recovering from crisis and with the other major economies facing comparatively tougher problems, tougher even than ours here in the United States. Now, there's no way of knowing how long the financial markets will give the American political system to get ahead of this problem. But it makes no sense for us to wait until they force action upon us. As we saw in the fall of 2008, when confidence turns, it can turn with brutal force and with a momentum that is very difficult and very costly to arrest. 
This is a threat we should preempt. If we don't, the economic damage and the human cost will be much greater. Confidence is much more expensive to restore than it is to keep. If we leave our debt problems unaddressed, those who lend us the resources to fund our past and future commitments will eventually demand higher interest rates. And higher borrowing costs for American households and businesses will discourage future private investment, lower our capital stock, reduce the rate of economic growth, and lower our standard of living. The cost of paying higher interest will make us poorer. Every dollar in interest payments means a dollar in higher future taxes, or a dollar we can't spend on more productive investments like education, or our national security commitments, or programs for the poor, or the elderly, or those with disabilities. So for all these reasons, the choice we face is not whether to start to get our fiscal house in order, but how we do it. And to provide some context for the choices we face, consider the following facts. In the United States of America today, 40% of children born each year are covered by Medicaid. If you're born today in hard-pressed communities in many American cities, like Detroit, St. Louis, or Baltimore, you are more likely to die before your first birthday than if you were born in Sri Lanka or Belarus. In education, we're, of course, losing ground. In L.A. today, for example, but not just in L.A., only about half the kids graduate from high school. Over the next 25 years, the number of Americans eligible for Medicare and Social Security will nearly double, while the number of working-age Americans will increase only by about 10%, putting substantial new burdens on working Americans. We still live in a dangerous world with young men and women fighting and dying to protect our freedom. We spend $700 billion a year on national security, and this is only about two-thirds of what we spent during the Cold War as a share of our economy. The effective income tax rate for the wealthiest Americans, those earning more than $250,000 a year, is at its lowest level in 50 years. And the effective tax rate for the very rich, say those earning more than $10 million per year, has declined much further and now is around 21%. So clearly we have some tough tough choices to make, and to put us on a path of living within our means, we have to bring these deficits down, to bring them down gradually but dramatically over the next three to five years. We need to cut our annual deficits that are now roughly 10% of GDP to the point where the overall debt burden begins to fall as a share of the economy. This requires that we achieve and maintain what economists call primary surplus, which means that we cut what we spend on everything except interest payments to less than we raise in revenues. And for the United States, this means a deficit below 3% of GDP. Achieving this goal is the essential test of fiscal sustainability. We can't do this too quickly, though. It has to be a multi-year process with cuts phased in over time that does not put at risk an economy coming out of crisis. With interest rates now very low, we cannot count on the Federal Reserve to be able to offset the contractionary effects on economic growth of a lurch to excessive and premature austerity. If we put our deficits on a path to get them down below 3% of GDP by 2015 and we hold them there, 
with reforms that politicians commit, commit to sustain to leave in place, then the federal debt held by the public will peak in the range of about 70 to 80% of GDP and then start to fall. The economic and the political question is not whether, but how to achieve this objective. And the debate we now confront is how to cut these deficits while strengthening our ability to grow and compete in the future, protecting our national security interests, and preserving health care and retirement security for the elderly, the poor, and those with disabilities. So let me describe briefly how the president, the president proposes to do that. First, the president proposes to reduce spending across the government. And toward that objective, the president has proposed cutting spending on government functions outside of national security, health care, and social security by more than $1 trillion over the next 12 years. And these cuts, if enacted, would bring non-security discretionary spending to its lowest level as a share of the economy since Eisenhower. And this will require savings in mandatory programs that have a lot of political support, like agricultural subsidies. On top of this, the president proposes to cut $400 billion in security spending, while, of course, making sure we preserve the essential capacity to meet our national security responsibilities. The president's framework cuts government spending while at the same time preserving our ability to finance productive investments in things like education, research and innovation, infrastructure, and clean energy, things that are critical to our capacity to grow in the future. These investments in those areas, education, research and innovation, infrastructure, clean energy, they meet two key tests. They have very high returns in terms of future economic growth, and the private markets will not finance these investments at an adequate level without the catalyst of government incentives. Now, alongside these investments, the president proposes to remake the corporate tax system so that it does a better job of promoting business investment in the United States. And together, this mix of reforms reflects the fundamental reality that the composition of spending cuts is hugely consequential to whether deficit reduction hurts or helps future economic growth. Second key piece of the president's framework, the president proposes substantial savings from Medicare and Medicaid, on top of those reforms that were adopted in the Affordable Care Act. Together, these programs, Medicare and Medicaid, are responsible for about one-fifth of our budget. And because, of course, of the aging of the population, the increase in life expectancy, and rising cost of new medical treatments, they are the main source, the main drivers of our long-term deficits. So for Medicaid, the President proposes at least $100 billion in savings over the next decade while making it easier for states to administer the program. He proposes for Medicare an additional $200 billion in savings over the next decade by harnessing the purchasing power of Medicare to control spending. And in addition, he would build on the fundamental reforms in the Affordable Care Act that were praised by independent health experts from across the political spectrum, including by requiring the Independent Payment Advisory Board to target cost growth in Medicare to GDP plus 0.5%, a very tough standard for controlling cost growth. And while Social Security is not the cause of our current deficits, the President has said that Republicans and Democrats should come together to make changes to the program now that will put it on a solid footing into the future. 
Finally, the president proposes changes to the individual tax code that will reduce the deficit while moving towards a more fair and simple system. By restoring the tax rates on individuals earning more than $250,000 a year to the level that prevailed during the Clinton administration, by returning the estate tax to 2009 rates, and by scaling back tax expenditures, the president's plan would generate additional revenue without putting at risk future incentives for economic growth. Now, the reforms we must adopt have to be grounded in realistic assumptions about the path of future policies, the impact of legislation, and economic changes. Neither Congress nor the administration should be able to use unrealistic assumptions about future economic growth or future political courage or other forms of magical thinking to minimize the magnitude of the reforms that will be necessary. These changes will be difficult, of course, but in a balanced framework like this, with the burden of adjustment shared broadly and phased in over an appropriate period of time, then the overall economic impact will be manageable. Now, to make this framework credible, we need a mechanism that forces reform. So the president has proposed that Congress impose on itself a debt cap that would lock in the necessary reductions in deficits over the next several years, and as a fail-safe, would require automatic cuts in spending, including spending the tax code, if the targets aren't met. This is very important. It's the fiscal policy equivalent of trying to take politics out of monetary policy, as we and most other countries have done, did some time ago, by making central banks independent with a mandate to keep inflation low. We need a debt cap so that politicians cannot choose to live with unsustainable deficits. It reduces the legitimate area for political debate to how to achieve a sustainable fiscal position, not whether to achieve a sustainable fiscal position. Now, you can tell from the debate in Washington, there are big differences among Republicans and Democrats on how to achieve the reductions in future deficits that we all agree, we all know are necessary. And the divisions are very substantial. They're most pronounced in three areas, how best to promote future economic growth, how to reform the tax code, and how to protect health care and retirement security for the elderly and the poor. Now, given these differences, we believe the most realistic approach is to design a framework that forces the necessary political agreement on, ref on reforms. And to do this, we're trying to negotiate a multi-year framework of debt caps and targets with a substantial down payment of specific cuts and policy reforms. In order to be meaningful, this down payment has to be substantial relative to the total amount of deficit reduction we need over the next decade. All the fiscal plans now on the table include roughly $4 trillion in total deficit reduction over the next 10 to 12 years. So there's broad agreement now on the ultimate goal and the ultimate time frame. The components of the down payment, again, to be credible, have to touch all parts of the federal budget, from defense to Medicare and Medicaid, and they should be balanced by changes in revenue. It should include a mix of specific savings from mandatory programs and commitments to lower future discretionary spending. The more specific the reforms, the more believable and credible will be the framework. And these savings in the down payment would be, be complemented by an overall cap 
on future debt and deficits with a strong enforcement mechanism to force action that would deliver the remaining savings. Now, here's how the mechanism would work. At the beginning of 2013, and every year after that, we would assess the magnitude of additional deficit reduction required necessary to bring down the debt as a share of the economy over the following five years. Congress would then have roughly nine months to enact legislation that would meet that target. If Congress cannot agree on the legislation, then automatic cuts in spending and tax expenditures would go into effect for the following year. It would put us on a path to meeting that fiscal target. Now, the size of the remaining cuts we're going to need beyond the down payment will depend significantly on the future of the Bush tax cuts, which, of course, without new legislation, will expire at the end of 2012. The president, as you know, has proposed to extend the tax cuts that benefit the middle class, but to allow the tax cuts that benefit just the top 2 to 3% of Americans to expire on schedule. And allowing those tax cuts to expire will reduce future deficits by roughly $1 trillion over the decade ahead. Now, taken together, our view is this is a reasonable plan. It includes a balance of short-term savings and long-term reforms so that we don't just push all the tough decisions into the future. It's an achievable plan, and it meets the critical test of any plan, which is it is better than the alternatives. A few points on the alternative strategies that have been proposed. Some have suggested that we set a global cap on spending as a share of the economy at a level that prevailed in the decade before the crisis or the decades before that. The two dominant suggestions on the table suggest a target of spending at either 20.6% of GDP or something like 18% of GDP or somewhere as low as 16% of GDP. Now, these targets have obvious simplistic appeal, but they have no practical value as a device for fiscal restraint. Let me explain why. We cannot cap or reverse the aging of the population. As the baby boom generation retires, the number of Americans turning 65 will increase dramatically. And as a result, if you cap spending at historical levels, you would be forced to make exceptionally deep cuts in benefits to seniors and the poor, as well as in all the core functions of government, such as defense and education. Spending caps do not provide the government with the flexibility you need to respond to future national security threats or future recessions. And spending caps, even if set at more realistic levels, would not be sufficient to achieve fiscal sustainability. Without overall caps on debt or deficits, spending measures alone will just enable future Congresses and presidents to still try to live with higher deficits by cutting tax rates or shifting more spending to the tax code. And it's worth noting that already today we spend as much in special tax preferences in the tax code as we collect in federal income tax revenue from individuals. Now, the House Republicans have proposed a plan that has deep spending reductions but devotes a substantial portion of those savings to keep tax rates low at at exceptionally low levels for the wealthy, not just for the middle class. And this approach will not pass the Congress now or in the future, not just because any legislation today requires votes from both Democrats and Republicans, but also because this alternative proposal would require implausibly deep cuts in benefits for the elderly and the poor and reduce the rest of government spending 
the rest of government spending to what it was before the modern era or to a level more typical of a developing nation. The fundamental reality of our fiscal situation is that we will need to generate more revenue and we will need to reduce the rate of growth in spending on health care and retirement security. Both are necessary. Neither alone can carry the full burden. And the essential value in the House budget is to show that if you try to deliver fiscal sustainability with no contribution from tax reform, then you have to make dramatic, drastic cuts to these critical government functions. According to the CBO, these cuts would, by 2022, raise costs for an average Medicare beneficiary by $6,500 a year and would eventually reduce the total amount the government spends as a share of the economy, aside from interest and Social Security, to a lower level than at any time since World War II. Now, Americans can do better, and I want to make it just clear that if the presidents try to impose that plan on this country as a condition for raising the debt limit, then they will own the responsibility for the first default in American history with devastating damage to the nation. Now, yesterday, we reached the debt limit, and because Congress had not acted to raise it, we were forced to deploy a series of extraordinary measures to prevent default. These measures will give us until August 2nd, before we can no longer, will no longer be able to meet our obligations securely. And I said before, as I've said before, Congress has to meet its responsibility to protect the nation's full faith and credit by increasing the debt limit. Now, of course, the debt limit relates only to commitments we've made in the past. And rather than debating whether we should pay our past bills, whether default would in fact be so bad, rather than designing schemes that are designed to allow us to continue to make interest payments by breaking our commitments to seniors and veterans, we should be working together to narrow our differences on how to solve the causes of our future deficits. But I want to emphasize again that if a fiscal agreement is not reached in the coming weeks, in advance of August 2nd, then the debt limit must still be increased. And it's not an option for Congress to evade the basic responsibility to protect America's creditworthiness. Now, our objective, our responsibility, is to seize this moment when Democrats and Republicans agree that deficits matter, that living within our means is not just an option, but it's a necessity, that putting this off for another day is no longer possible. Our objective is to build a bipartisan consensus on a comprehensive and balanced fiscal reform plan. Reform plan. This will help restore confidence that Washington is up to the many challenges we face as a nation. It'll help give businesses and investors the confidence they need to make long-term investments in the United States. It will help preserve the strong economic foundation necessary for protecting our national security, and it'll give us the room we need to invest in the future. Thank you, Alex. I'll be happy to take your questions. Secretary Geithner, you've uh, outlined uh, an ambitious and 
I think, uh, in a political sense, optimistic scenario. You've been, in the, over the last two years, able to create um, confidence in both the financial situation and in you personally. This is going to have to be sold to a very difficult audience. Are you going to be taking the lead in this effort? I know that this is something that apparently, it seems anyway, over the last couple of weeks or months, you have stepped out more forcefully as an individual as the spokesman for the Obama administration in this, in this issue, not just of the debt ceiling, but of the overall economic future. Is that something that you're going to be taking the lead in? Well, I'm the Secretary of the Treasury. It's central to my role. But this is the president's cause. It's the president's conviction. And he's put the vice president of the United States in, in charge of negotiating the political solution for him. And he's been leading these negotiations that we just started. Uh, and you know, he's joined with in this cause with, I think, the most talented team of people in Jack Lew and Gene Sperling and Bruce Reed, who were the central architects of the best precedent we have for bipartisan fiscal reform agreements reached in the period between 95 and 97, 93, 95, 96, 97. But, but uh, let me tell you why I think we can be optimistic. It's not just that we just successfully prevented the next great Depre- the, uh, uh, you know, a second Great Depression. You know, that, that was a massively complicated endeavor. This is not as hard as that. It, it feels politically more difficult, but it's not nearly as hard as that. And if you listen carefully to what American people say about this, Americans you know, are, are a very strong, much more confident, much more optimistic, much more generous people than many of their politicians give them credit for. They know we have to solve this. And they put it at the top or near the top of their concerns about the country. And if you listen carefully, again, beneath the political rhetoric, you see Republicans and Democrats joint in embracing the imperative, talking about the same basic magnitude of reductions we need, and that's the critical moment. Again, if you look back to the period between 95 and 97, it was when Republicans and Democrats both said we need to balance the budget that the debate completely turned. And at that point, it was about how to do it, not whether to do it. That's the most important shift. And remember, we just lived with a decade, if not more, people saying we don't have to worry about deficits. So... Again, I'm I'm very optimistic about the country. I'm worried about this problem, very confident about the economy, uh, and we need to get ahead of this. And we have a chance to do it now. We want to take this moment, uh, this opportunity to do as much as we can. You're You're the 75th Secretary of the Treasury. Leaving living secretaries aside, are there any secretaries of the Treasury that you look to as models, that you look to as people you admire for the job they did at a critical moment? Oh, uh, so many of them. But I, since you asked me, I'm going to read you a quote. Um, <laughs> this was not staged, I promise. Now, this is a letter about the debt limit. You didn't ask me about the debt limit, but I'd like to share I'm this with you. To, yeah. I'm going to read you. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to read you two paragraphs. I should stress that defaulting on already outstanding, validly incurred obligations has far graver effects than halting operations of the government when spending authority is allowed to lapse, such as when there's a delay in action on appropriations. We, you know, at Treasury Secretary, have a particular command of poetry. A failure, <laughs> to pay, a failure to pay what is already due will cause certain and serious harm to our credit, 
financial markets and our citizens, it is not remotely similar to a lapse in authority to incur new obligations. But hold on, just bear with me. I cannot overemphasize the damage that would be done to the United States credit standing in the world if the government were to default on its obligations, nor the unprecedented and catastrophic repercussions that would ensue. Market chaos, financial institution failures, higher interest rates, flight from the dollar, loss of confidence, and the certainty of all U.S. government obligations would produce a global economic and financial calamity. Future generations of Americans would have to pay dearly for this grave breach of a 200-year-old trust. Sincerely, James A. Baker III, July 8, 1987. He's one, I would say. <laughs> Do you think the rhetoric of pulling the trigger that the Republicans, many Republicans, are uh, using as far as the debt ceiling is concerned is, shall I use the word trumpery? I mean, is it a, uh, is it baloney, or you know, is it real? It, it's, Washington is a, is a complicated place, and it really is hard to separate the political theater uh, from what's real and what's happening. And, you know, I spent a lot of time with Republicans and Democrats, with the leadership of both parties, and the leadership of the Republican Party has made it clear to the president that they will get this done. They will not take it too long. They will not play politics with it because they recognize it's unthinkable for us to do this. But the real challenge is how to build a political consensus on a sensible way to bring some gravity to our fiscal position. That's the real challenge. We have a moment to make some progress now. And again, our, our hope is, and, I, and I, our expectation is, that we can get something serious done. We're not going to be able to resolve decades of ideological divide in this short time frame we have. But... Uh, we get a lot of overlapping objectives, and our, ch- our challenge is to lock those in now. May I ask, do you intend to continue as Secretary of the Treasury at least as long as President Obama is Until in we office? solve our, fiscal, our long-term fiscal problems? Yes. <laughs> All of them. Uh, we got a lot of work out of us still. I mean, as I said, you know, I'm very proud of the progress we've made. We're in a much stronger position than I ever thought we would be, given how damaging, how grave the crisis was. But we got a lot of challenges left, and um, and it's been a great privilege for me to even have a chance to to work with that that group of people. Is that <clears throat> yes or maybe or what? <laughs> it's, it's an excellent, thoughtful question. I'm thinking about a lot, <laughs> <laughs> a lot these days. <laughs> Do you expect that the legacy of Tim Geithner as Secretary of the Treasury will, will be debated for a long period of time? Well, I think. The, the, the reality of it will be that when you announced your plan right after you became Secretary of the Treasury, you were, you were hammered by practically everyone. Um, that tune has changed dramatically. You have changed dramatically, I think. At least that's the way you present. I'm the same person. Uh, Nevertheless. The same person I was then. I don't mean the same person inside, but I think that the, one of the questions has been, all along. Is the Obama administration able to make its case, uh, a case that is compelling, but has not very, very effectively been made, or at least not, not accepted by Americans? Can that be done better? Can you do better at that? Is that well, something you've I, worked on? I don't know if I can. You know, and I'm the wrong person to ask that kind of question to. You know, I'm not a, you can tell, I'm not a political person. I, I didn't spend my life learning how to explain complicated. I tell my staff that I can make, or they tell me, I can make any simple problem sound complicated. Uh, 
So, uh, so I'm not right. I'm not the right person to ask that question to. Um, but I, I think you're right to point out that, and this is why I admire so much the, the legacy of, of uh, Walter, is that uh, a huge part of making economic decisions is being able to explain not just what we're trying to do, but why the options we propose are better than the alternatives. You know, my colleagues tease me for saying all the time that um, plan beats no plan. Faced with unacceptable choices, no good choices, you still have to choose. But the more important thing is to be able to judge a plan by, its, by the alternatives. And the hardest thing to do in economic policy is to explain why the alternative that seems more simple and compelling, more just, more fair, more clear, um, more hope in it, does not work offers no promise in practice. And I think the big challenge, at least I can say personally for me, is to find a way uh, to explain the choices we have to make so that people understand that you have to judge something by the alternatives. And what's clear from the fiscal policy debate we face today is uh, it's easy to say to people that this is something we have to do, but of course that's just the beginning. You have to invest them in the difficulty of the choices and the trade-offs so they understand why it's so hard. And I think that's the central challenge of communication in economic policy. As you can see, I'm still wrestling with it. One of the things that the Obama administration has been criticized for by some, especially on the left, is by being too willing to compromise. This kind of a situation is one in which compromise seems absolutely essential. Do you have a sense of how far is too far in the way you actually personally look at things and recognize that there is a way that you believe in and a way perhaps that you don't? Well, I, I tried to say this. Uh, I tried to say this in, in my remarks. You know, I think there are things we cannot do, will not be prepared to do, will not sacrifice. And what we can't do is, given the stakes of the moment, and given the delicacy around confidence in our country now emerging from crisis, what we can't do is set up a dynamic where people on any side of the aisle uh, use this as a chance to try to legislate a particular political agenda. But I, I think that what's at stake for us and why a balanced plan is so important is because, again, if you think about the challenges we face, unless you do this in a broad-based, balanced way, you will be imposing unacceptable damage on all the core things governments do. Our capacity to invest in our future, invest in things to make us stronger, commitments to the poor and the elderly, national security. Uh, It is not possible to offer people the choice of trying to do this just on spending that they can't see and don't believe in. It's not a responsible alternative. So I think the core things we have to defend are the necessary functions that are essential to our capacity to grow and have to make sure we preserve that. And I think that's why you need a more balanced, uh, gradual framework. I want to uh, invite those of you who are here to, uh, to address a question to the Secretary. I would ask that you indicate you want to do that by holding up your hand and wait till you get a microphone and then identify yourself, please. Yes, sir, back here. Uh, hello, Chris Oberbeck. Uh, Mr. Secretary, thank you very much for that. It was very, very interesting. Um, You say you're not a political person, and just a quick question. I realize it's a public forum, but um, assuming a deal is reached at midnight on August 1st, 
But it has to be before that. Just let me stop you there. Okay. What, what's, again, what's this is not the kind of thing that you want to take to the edge. You know, uh, think of it this way. If you leave people with any doubt, then they'll start to act uh, in a way that protects them from the possibility we don't act. That itself has the same basic dynamics uh, of default. More modest initially, but they'll start. So you can't wait till that minute. Be responsible. Well, what, that whatever, your question? we'll pick a date, but uh, if, what would you predict that the deal will look like? I think it'll look largely like what I said, in the sense that it'll have a, uh, it should have a basic framework that locks in a declining path for deficits, get them low enough and holds them there, with as large a down payment of specific savings across the core government function as we can, with an enforcement mechanism and a trigger that will force the main balance of choices. So the, and you want to put, you don't want to leave too much of the burden for the plan on uh, the targets and the enforcement mechanism. The more you can identify specific reforms up front, the more believable it'll be, and the smaller burden you leave to the enforcement mechanism. But that's what it has to look like. Given the short-term situation here, do you have reason to believe that the leadership of the Republican Party will, will work with you on this? They, absolutely. They, I mean, again, I think that they are... They're sitting at the table with us. We're talking about detailed spending, detailed reforms now. We're going systematically through all the big, all the areas where the money is to try and lock in some things. And uh, I think they're actually pretty realistic. Uh, not, not all of them are realistic, but I think the leadership is pretty realistic about what's possible. Rory. Uh, yes, Mr. Secretary, if, you said... If you want to your, identify yourself. I'm sorry, Rory O'Connor. Uh, Thank you for coming today. You said uh, part of your plan uh, is to generate new revenue, and that uh, you're optimistic about that happening. You said further the Republican. No, I didn't. I didn't say that. Let me just say I did not say I was optimistic uh, that we have um, broad enthusiasm among Republicans for revenue. For the, we for obviously the, for the don't. Tax issues, we don't. Think? But it's going to have to come. It's going to have to happen. And again, that's what they demonstrated with the plan they passed uh, through the House. Because what that plan shows is, if you pretend you can't touch revenue, you're unwilling to, then you're forced uh, to live with um, uh, cuts that'll be completely unacceptable to the American people or to Republicans. Uh, so that's why you need revenue. But I'm not optimistic that you see the basis for revenue now, uh, but it's going to have to come. Okay, because uh, you, you did say further that the Republican leadership has assured the president, and I guess you, that, quote, we will get this done. Now, Speaker no. Boehner, of course, We'll get the was, debt limit done, yeah. At the debt limit done. Okay, because Speaker Boehner was here, you know, recently and made no bones about it. As a matter of fact, I think you said new revenue is off the table. How are you going to deal with that? Well, I, I, I think it's a challenge for us. It would be better now, uh, better for business confidence, better for individuals to know the precise shape of the fiscal reforms to come, because that would allow them to plan, to adjust. They could see that. But we can't do full clarity, full resolution, uh, without a comprehensive approach. And if they're unwilling to put revenues on the table, then we're going to be able to do less up front. That's the basic uh, reality of the situation. So what you have to do, again, is lock in as much as you can in terms of spending and reforms. And you have to leave open where the balance is going to come from. And the balance is going to come from a mix of defense cuts, tax reform that raises revenues, and uh, further cuts in spending entitlements. The precise mix of that balance, if it can't be resolved right now, which it probably can't be ultimately, has to be forced by the careful design of a trigger. Uh, so I think that's the realistic framework that's achievable now. But again, uh, you can't 
you can't put it all on what people would call process changes, process commitments. There has to be real things people can feel and see for it to be believable uh, and credible. And that's, that's the difficult balance. But, but ultimately, of course, you're going to need uh, more, of, um, more of everything. Yes, sir. Uh, Mr. Secretary, if you Adam, identify yourself, Adam Reese with CNN. How concerned are you, sir, about the leadership vacuum at the IMF? And you know Mr. Strauss-Kahn personally. What are your thoughts? Well, of course, I can't comment on uh, the case, but he's obviously not in a position to run the IMF. And I think it's important that the board of the IMF uh, formally put in place for an interim period uh, somebody to act as managing director. And uh, they have in John Lipsky the... It's not the constitutional order of succession, but the legal order of succession. And he's a very capable person, a lot of experience. Uh, so I think that's the appropriate step to take. And your thoughts? You know him personally. You've known him for a while. I think I should limit my, my comments to that. I think it's important that, you know, you, you know, there's lots going on in the world, a lot going on in Europe in particular, and you want the IMF to have the capacity to, to be helpful in that context. And uh, I'm very confident they can, they can continue to play a very constructive role. Yes. Catherine Rampell, The New York Times. Um, so there have been other policy attempts to try to, to impose some kind of trigger, including, I mean, I would, I would argue that the debt ceiling is one such type policy. No, I, w- I would uh, stop you there. Debt ceiling has never proved a valuable device for discipline. I think it's been raised more than 70 times in the last several exactly, decades yeah. at a period when Congress was piling on lots of debt. Uh, and you're right to say that triggers themselves don't, substitute for political will. Uh, but uh, we have enough experience with our design that we can design around the things that undermine them, have undermined them in the past. And they can play a hugely valuable role. Just look at the experience with pay-as-you-go rules on discretionary spending when they were in place in the 90s. And look what happened when they were abandoned. It puts a huge discipline. It's the same discipline your family lives with, which is to say that if you don't have the money within that cap, you have to find ways to spend more. You can't cut taxes without finding a way to raise more revenue. You can't add spending without saving money. It's a, it's a necessary and perfectly feasible discipline. The challenge we face is you have to put it on the overall deficit, the overall balance of revenues and spending going forward so you can bring the deficits down. It and just seems, It just seems like there have been other attempts in the past to, for, by politicians to you know, sort of tie themselves to the mast like Ulysses sometime in the future. The bird rule is another example, and politicians always find a way, it's, it, seemingly, to either undo the, the trigger or you know, whatever handcuffs I, they I think you're on. absolutely at risk, but I think it's different now. Remember, our deficits are ten, they're swollen by the recession. They're, they're, much, they're uh, swollen by a bunch of temporary factors, the legacy of the crisis, but they're very high. Now, the fundamental reality is different, and there is more recognition across the political spectrum of the need to lock things in now. And again, you can't put all the burden on the trigger and the target. I totally agree with you in that context. You have to have as much in terms of identified savings to give you as much as the distance as you can up front for it to be believable. But, you know, life's about alternatives, just to repeat that basic phrase. And unless you're going to see Republicans and Democrats come together in six weeks, eight weeks, on these fundamental questions that still divide them on the ultimate shape of tax reform or the ultimate shape of Medicare, uh, then we're forced to try to figure out what kind of framework can we embrace that will recognize the reality of that constraint 
but still allow us to begin the process of restoring gravity to the fiscal position. That, that's why we're debating this, not because we think that they substitute for political will, but they can help uh, complement it, they can help force it, they can help incent it, and they can help just constrain uh, the loss of, um, of virtue. This here. Sarah Boxer with CBS. If the debt ceiling isn't raised by August 2nd, what is the immediate reaction, like, consequence? Do you want me to read Baker's letter again? <laughs> I, can't, I can't improve on that. I, you know, I've written uh, carefully uh, about uh, what I think would be the likely consequences. Can't know it for sure, but we're not going to experiment with it so we can really understand it. We're not going to take that risk. That would be deeply irresponsible. You know, we're the United States of America. You've got to be kidding Coming out of this crisis, not a chance. This over here. Kathleen Hayes, uh, Bloomberg Radio. Nice to see you again. Uh, regarding corporate tax reform, what what is the going to be the, the the basic driving thrust of that? Because, for example, I was speaking to someone at a big oil company. I was down in Houston doing my show a few weeks ago, and we were, I was talking about energy policy. So many people think we should. Be, you know, get rid of the subsidies and the windfalls. And he said, well, what do you, every industry has subsidies and windfalls. They have more than others. So you're in favor of that? Uh, the central rationale for corporate tax reform should be to lower the statutory rate to a level that puts us more in the range of our major trading partners and to make that possible by dialing back reducing the range of tax expenditures that now, uh, I'll say, litter uh, the corporate tax code. And that's a sensible thing to try to do. It's a very hard thing to do because it'll change the relative effective tax rates of different companies, different industries. Uh, But it's a sensible thing to do. Why should we want to live with a tax code where every year people don't know what's going to be the tax preference for certain activities next year? Why would we want to live with a tax code where you know, ultimately, it's the quality of your lobbyist that determines a key part of the economics of your business. It, it makes no sense for the country. So we, our view, the president's view is, is that this is worth trying to do. It's going to be politically difficult to do, particularly if you try and do it like we're going to try ahead of individual tax reform. But I think it's a sensible thing to do. And again, you know, I think the political challenge for us is, given that we're, we're going to be divided on some big political issues for some time, we want to find things that Republicans and Democrats can do together that aren't inherently partisan, have commanded in the past some bipartisan consensus, and we have to find ways we can do that that are going to be good for the economy, and this is one of them, I think. Is there any chance to get something like a flat tax for corporations? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't think there's a realistic prospect of that. This right here. I'm Toshio Wata with Asahi Shimbun, Japanese newspaper. Mr. Secretary, I have a follow-up question on corporate tax reform. So are you going to seek uh, the agreement on corporate tax reform as a part of the, the entire fiscal consolidation plan? Not, not, in, this, um, not in this next uh, two-month framework. We've got, we got a lot to do in that framework. Uh, but we're going to try to uh, get this process moving, build political support for it. Uh, I think realistically, and, it, and it's probably right, that this fiscal debate we're having is going to is going to dominate uh, uh, our preoccupation for the next uh, you know, couple months we get through it. But we've been doing a lot of work on how to figure out the, the, a sensible design of a better corporate tax system, and we'd like to move forward on that when we, when we can. A little more time frame within this uh, year? Or? 
Well, again, I think, I think we'd like to take a run at doing this uh, ahead of the election. That means we've got to start, but uh, we also need to get this fiscal stuff in a better trajectory. Um, Secretary, uh, I'm Eric Alterman. Um, I wrote a little book about the administration this year, um, and there's one thing I've never been able to figure out, and I get asked about it, and I have no answer, and it's this. During the primary season, uh, Barack Obama took a lot of uh, heat from Hillary Clinton for saying that he admired the way Ronald Reagan managed to change the discourse, to inject new ideas into the debate, and um, I thought he was right. I thought that attack was unfair, and yet... As president, he hasn't really tried to do that. He hasn't tried to move the 50-yard line down the field so that the debate on economics would be conducted on traditionally democratic grounds rather than Republican grounds. He has left himself vulnerable to Republican conservative arguments because that's, that's what he came into. And that's not what Reagan did. And I'm just wondering if there was a decision not to use the power of the bully pulpit to try and move the move the discussion uh, into a more progressive direction. Which way? Into a progressive direction? I think I'm the wrong person to ask that question to. It's a good, it's a good question, but again, I'm, you know who I am. I'm not a politician. I'm not the president's political strategist. Uh, and, but you know, I, will, I will say, if you look at what this president accomplished so far at enormous political cost, he's made the most dramatic changes progress on things progressive Democrats care about than have been attempted and achieved in a very long period of time at enormous political cost. And so you want to judge him by not just what he's tried to achieve, but at the magnitude of those basic reforms and the courage he showed in doing such difficult things with very little support. I mean, Again, just remember back how this place felt in the fall of 2008. At that point, everything was at risk. And, you know, he was willing. He didn't sit there and say, let's have a debate about what would be uh, interesting to do or when are the Republicans going to join me in some bipartisan effort to try to solve this so I get some political cover. Uh, He chose to do the hard, tough thing very early, at huge political cost, uh, betrayed enormous political courage, just compare to what one of his predecessors did in particular at a similar transition moment in history. And that was uh, the necessary decisive thing to do. And there is no progressive cause that is possible, would have been possible, without the progress he achieved in putting out that financial fire and the hundreds of billions of dollars we saved of the taxpayers' resources so that we could have some capacity to still support things that uh, Democrats care about. So, but I, I'm, I'm not giving you a political answer to your question. It's a political question. Yes, sir. Here. Uh, my name is Yoel Borgenet, and I know we discussed historical perspectives on the economic recession, but since you lived in the Far East and some of those countries rebounded more quickly than we have or weathered the recession uh, in a more positive light, I wanted to know if you saw any mod- models for adoption, if so, which ones... Uh, excellent question, and, and I think this is important to recognize because um, I think Barney Frank said famously once, you can't win an election on explaining to people it could have been worse. And it is very hard, uh, I think, for most people to understand uh, how perilous that moment was uh, two and a half years ago. And even with the history of the Great Depression, uh, hard for many people to understand that 
that was a credible reality at that basic moment. But I think even harder than that for people to understand is why can't growth be faster now? Why, why, is, why does it look like we're going to be growing, if you listen to private economists, at, at 3 to 4% over the next two years rather than north of that? And that's because, of course, this was a crisis born in part of the fact that uh, we were living way beyond their, our means and people had taken on much more debt than they could comfortably support with the income they were going to earn. And you saw this huge increase in leverage in the financial system and huge overinvestment in real estate in parts of the country, residential and commercial. And when you're coming out of a crisis like that, it just takes more time. Monetary policy can't do what it normally does to accelerate growth out of, out of a recession. It takes people time to bring down those debt burdens, to rebuild their balance sheets, to work off the huge overinvestment in construction. And that consigns you, along with the limits on monetary policy in a crisis like this, to it's a tragic fate. The tragic consequence of crises like this is that it consigns you to a slower rate of growth. Uh, so the disappointment people have today in the pace of recovery is just the tragic consequence of what caused this basic crisis. And it is going to take years still for us to work through this. Now, I still believe, though, that the basic strategy that we embraced for the financial crisis that the President Brace made possible alongside the Fed, uh, I think it'll be judged as the most effective financial strategy in modern history. And I think it compares exceptionally favorably to any recent experience by a developed country or a uh, developing country. And again, just look at the state of parts of Europe today relative to us and the consequences of adopting a dramatically different much less aggressive, much more gradual strategy for financial crisis. At the peak of this uh, financial rescue, we had, by some measures, $2.8 trillion of investments at risk in the system. And we're likely, across all the programs, Fed through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, FDIC, TARP, uh, to be well under $100 billion, a fraction of the GDP of the United States, a fraction of the cost of the SNL crisis, a much more modest crisis, because we were so aggressive in adapting a strategy to bring private capital in as quickly as we could. And we recapitalized our financial system much more aggressively, much more quickly, and did a much more brutal restructuring of the system than I think any of those uh, countries produced. And you saw growth turn here earlier, and I think stronger than you've seen in, in, in many of the developed economies. Now, there are previous recoveries that were quicker. Uh, but those were recoveries with a very different, following a very different kind of crisis, very different kind of cause. And we don't have the option now of trying to engineer uh, something dramatically stronger than that basic path. And that, again, is the tragic consequences of the type of crisis we got ourselves into. I'm going to ask two more questions. Jackie, then this, this lady back behind you has also been... Uh, Jackie Leo. She's been waiting patiently. Yeah. Jack, Jackie Leo from the Fiscal Times. Um, my question is about Dodd Frank and and how or if it is going to uh, actually be implemented and how much crumbling is going on as we speak. Well, you, you know, you're right to say that there are uh, there are people. I think even in this city uh, who are working hard to uh, slow it down, reduce its scope, reduce its power. And, and its force, and the 
the only tools they have are to try to starve funding for enforcement agencies and to block appointments. And if they choose to do that and they get support from people and they'll do it, then they can slow things down a little bit. But they, I don't think they can touch the basic architecture uh, of the reforms. And you know, we're still at the early stage of writing the rules and laying them out for comment and designing them. We have a long way to go to do that. Uh, but I think the core part of the reform thing will, um, will survive these efforts because I think it's the right thing to do for the country. And I think that people ultimately won't put up with, given the trauma caused by this crisis, they will not put up with a system that still is this vulnerable you know, without reform to the type of problems we see. Is the announcement today of these audits of the five huge banks and their bad behavior in terms of mortgages something that will affect the public opinion about this regulatory question? Uh, I don't know. I can't speak to those things specifically. I, I, I would say that um, we have a long way to go to earn back the basic confidence of Americans and the integrity of this financial system. And you know, that's going to require a sustained enforcement response. And I think we should have a lot of confidence in the basic quality of our uh, justice system enforcement capacity. And, but they're going to want to see also uh, these reforms that Congress legislated take hold and get traction and provide better protection for consumers, more transparent markets, a more safe system. And I think that's something that's going to come only with time. Because again, people want to see uh, what you do, not just what you say you're going to do. Uh, and that's going to take time for them to judge. Finally, yes, back here. Uh, Vicki Schmelzer, Market News International. In recent sessions, we're again seeing the instance where the dollar's rising on safe haven demand rather than strong U.S. fundamentals. Are you at all concerned about global investors' preference for non-dollar currencies at times of high risk appetite? I'm, I'm very uh, careful, as you know, not to comment on the markets beyond uh, our careful um, standard uh, phrase, and that's a sort of a good practice. Uh, uh, but I think you're right to point out and remind people that, and this is an important thing we want to preserve and protect about the United States, at the worst moments of the crisis, and really every time, even over the last two years or three years, when people started to get worried again about risk in other parts of the system, uh, you saw people basically decide they wanted to be in dollars or in treasuries. And we need to preserve that. That's a great basic strength of this country. It reflects ultimately a huge amount of confidence in the basic strength of our political system, capacity to act to solve our problems. And we want to we wanna act to earn that confidence over time, uh, not take advantage of it. Secretary Geidner, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. 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 Thank you.